2 Samuel chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it up and turn there. If you don't, I guess you can look up on the screen. But even though we have the words posted on the screen, I want to really encourage you to bring your Bible or your iPod or your iPad or whatever electronic device, just whatever you use to keep the Bible close to you. Unless you've memorized every single chapter in the Bible, then I want to see you after the service <laughs> to test you. Second Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow down before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. Now when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Jerah, coming from there. He came out cursing continually as he came in. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue! The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, sons of Zariah? So let him curse. Because the Lord had said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went through stones at him and kicked up dust. Then the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! So Absalom said to Hushai, 
Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but when the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Question. Have you ever been blamed for something that you didn't do? Question. Have you ever gotten away, at least temporarily, with something that you really did do? Have you been criticized unfairly? Has anyone ever lied to you? Has anyone ever cheated you out of something that belonged to you? Welcome to David's world. Welcome to the wonderful world of ministry. Have you ever said, I want to be in the ministry? I want to be in the ministry because of all of the exciting things that ministry has to offer. David was about to learn some lessons about what it meant to be despised and rejected. That's what we learned the last time. Remember, he becomes a type and a picture even of our own Lord Jesus who is despised and rejected of men. Remember, in the book of Isaiah, it says that he was smitten and afflicted. Jesus is going to walk in a direction that's completely different from the rest of the world. Do you think it's easy to have courage and remain loyal when times are good? Is it more difficult to have courage and remain loyal when times are bad? And remember, the followers of Jesus had good times and they had bad times. They had difficult times and they had glorious times. You see, the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus will reward those who remain loyal under fire and who remain faithful in the fire. But make no mistake about it, there is a fire. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus, when he was speaking to the churches in the book of Revelation, he said, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. There are people who will experience pain and suffering and sorrow and tragedy and the fire. 
Remember what I said to you earlier, Warren Wiersbe says, times of rebellion are times of revelation. You see what people really believe and where they stand. And that's what happens in hardship and in pain and in sorrow. Often the truth about people begins to emerge Times of rebellion are also times of adversity. And we all face crisis. We face it in our marriage. We, we face it in our family. We face it on the job. We face it with our health. We face it in our pocketbook. And when your world has collapsed and now you are going to walk on a journey, how do you respond? Do you clam up? Do you blow up? Do you freak out? I experience people at the best times in their life and at the worst times in their life. And sometimes when people experience pain and sorrow and tragedy, they literally become bitter. And they don't trust the Lord. And they don't cling to his promises. They close their Bible and they close their heart and they discontinue their friendships and they stop coming to church. But when you're misunderstood in ministry, you're going to experience sometimes a pain and sorrow. And for David, as he walks this road, he begins to understand something about his life and about who he is and what God has called him to do. And in his time of rejection and sorrow, he learns one great big lesson right from the start that everything you hear isn't always true. And that's what happens in the opening part of verse 16. Everything you hear isn't always true. He comes to the top of the mountain, mount, at, at the Mount of Olives, and there was Zeba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met them with a couple of saddled donkeys. Now think about this. Here is this guy. He comes out with donkeys, 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of wine, summer fruits, a skin of wine, and a great big bill from Costco. No, there's no bill there. He's got all of this stuff and it makes, it, it's at first, it seems like it's a blessing. How wonderful, how wonderful someone has come to his aid during a time of sorrow and pain. Now, Ziba was a man with 15 sons and 20 servants that David made chief steward over the estate of former King Saul. Remember, Saul was the king, and Saul had a son named Jonathan, who was David's best friend. And remember, earlier in the book of 2 Samuel, David wanted to show kindness to the, to the survivors of Saul's household, and he found Mephibosheth, and he lavished him with grace and honor, and invited him to join him at the king's table. But here's the problem. Ziba shows up and he lies. Sometimes when you're in pain, sometimes when you're in sorrow, sometimes people will exploit tragedy as an opportunity to take self-serving advantage of you. I can't even begin to tell you all of the wicked things that took place around Columbine, around Ground Zero, around Hurricane Katrina, people on a vast scale being taken advantage of when you need water and food and clothing and shelter. And because we are the most generous, giving 
country on the planet earth when people's hearts are broken and their family is shattered. We are the most generous country on the planet earth. And sometimes people take advantage of your generosity. And that's exactly what Ziba is going to do. He will take advantage of David. And you'll recall that the property had belonged to Ziba before David gave it back to Mephibosheth, the rightful owner. And so in this particular instance, when he shows up with this stuff, David asks to Ziba, hey, what do you mean to do with these? He says, hey, this is to help you in your time of need. And the king says, where's your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. He, he's lying. He basically says, you know what Mephibosheth told me? He said that you and Absalom are going to eat each other up. You're going to consume each other and destroy each other. And when the smoke clears and the dust settles, I'm going to take back what belongs to me. And so... David, in sorrow, in pain, in rejection, he isn't always able to discern right from wrong and good from evil and truth from lies. Has that been your experience? That when you're in pain and when you're in trouble and people tell you things, sometimes you don't know what to believe. But it makes perfect sense to David. It makes perfect sense to David that if his own son is willing to betray him, doesn't it make sense that your best friend's son will, will also betray you? And so he decides to give Ziba back the properties that would have belonged to Jonathan or would have belonged to Saul. You know... It's always an important thing that I tell people. It's always a bad idea to make judgments based on the people who hate you. You know, people will criticize you and they typically fall into two categories. The people who love you and the people who hate you. But we're going to understand that a little bit better in just a moment. Ziba shows up when David's running for his life. Ziba brings a gift, but remember, it's a gift of exploitation to use the hardship and adversity for his own gain. And so he brings these little treasures, and David responds by saying, Hey, everything that used to belong to Mephibosheth and Jonathan and Saul is yours. Ziba shows up with what he needs, but he doesn't show up with spiritual advice. He doesn't show up with prayer and support and spiritual advice. The reason being is because he's not a spiritual man. And so David asks Ziba what he's going to do. And the donkeys are for the royal family to ride on. Because, hey, you're the royal family. You shouldn't go around barefoot. The bread and the fruit are for the young people. And the wine is to refresh yourself in, in the desert. All of this sounds so gracious. And all, it all sounds so generous. But you, do you know what it really means? It really means this is to see you on your way because I never expect to see you ever again. Can you imagine a person shows up on your, on, your, and your, on your doorstep as you're taking your Greyhound bus to Kansas? 
and somebody gives you a granola bar and says, here, here's a granola bar to help you on your trip. But you never expect to see them ever again. That's exactly what's taking place here. Zeba was playing the king like a cheap violin. This was the opportunity to trick the king into giving back everything that he had perceived he had taken away. And so the truth, Ziba left Mephibosheth behind in order to deceive David, to make him look like he was unsupportive and ungrateful. And by the way, when your world is falling apart, it hurts to see the deep friendships go by the wayside. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, quote, Ziba was utterly despicable, and the more so because the moment the sorrow he brought to the heart of the king was his feeling that his kindness toward Mephibosheth was ill-requited, unquote. In other words, the purpose of the deception was to heap sorrow upon sorrow and pain upon pain and to leave David with the idea, so this is how I'm rewarded. You show someone grace and mercy and kindness. You open up your heart. You open up your home. You open up your resources. And this is how they repay you. Ziba basically intimates that Mephibosheth hopes that David and Absalom will kill each other. And so, if, if all of this is happening, David's heart is broken And again, he becomes a a perfect example of a person who manipulates in a crisis to his own advantage. The second thing is, everything you hear isn't always false. Now remember, everyone you think is your friend isn't necessarily friend. And everything that, that, that is spoken to you isn't necessarily true. But also, everything that is spoken isn't necessarily false. Look in verse 5. It says, now when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul who's coming from there. He came out cursing continually as he came and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. This guy is clearly over the top. I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Princess Bride. But there's a scene in the movie where this old hag comes out when the princess comes out. She, remember, she's, she's the dread pirate has taken her, her lover away and she's in this, this bad situation where she's going to marry the wicked prince and this old hag of a lady comes out and goes, Boo! Princess of Putrefication. Princess of lies. This, This is what this guy is doing. King of condemnation. Wretched David. That's the idea. I mean, it is over the top. He has to deal with another ruthless accuser. You know what it's like. Again, when your world is collapsing, when it rains... It pours. He stirs up more strife and accusation. And remember why he's doing this. He's stirring up the strife and the accusation to humiliate and embarrass. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're already humiliated and embarrassed. And you don't need more humiliation and embarrassment. 
Shimei is from the same tribe as Saul. He has this deep and bitter grudge against David and his family, his hometown, Bahurim. And like Ziba, Shimei was sure that David is never coming back because, again, the things that he's saying and the things that he's doing, it is a kind of a burnt bridge that you can't return from. He swears, he curses, he shouts accusation after accusation. And here's the problem. Some of the accusations are true. And some of them are false. Most of them are false. And Shimei's criticism is designed to deflate whatever pride or dignity he has left. And in verse 7 it says, Shimei said, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. It's even more intense in the original language. He's called the son of Belial. Now, you may not understand the expression, the son of Belial, but Belial was one of the chief pagan gods of filthiness and dirtiness and uncleanness. As a matter of fact, this is exactly the same thing that Jesus is going to be accused of in the New Testament. Remember the religious leaders to say that Jesus is performing miracles, that he has supernatural power because he's in league with the devil. And so Shimei is basically saying that David was in league with the devil. Someone told me today when we were talking about the uh, situation in Israel, many of you are aware of the, of the, of the challenges at Gaza and, and the boarding of the ships and, and the people who were shot and killed and, and, and how the world has erupted in this vitriol and this real hatred of Israel. Someone actually wrote on a blog something to the effect Now we understand why the Holocaust took place, because you can't control these Jews. Yeah, awe is right, because again, you you begin to understand something, that there are people with deep-seated animosity towards the Jews. And so Shimei is burning his bridges There are always people who are willing to rejoice when the leader is down and out. Spurgeon writes, it's very hard to bear a cowardly attack. One is very apt to reply and use hard words who take advantage of your position and deal you the coward's blow. Only the coward strikes a man when he's down. And he says, you're a bloody man. And clearly David was a man of war. You're the son of Belial. Not true. This is, by the way, the same accusation, like I said, Jesus receives. He is a man of war. Clearly, there is an element of truth. David has killed a man. His wickedness and his sin has resulted in the murder of a person. David is accused of leading Israel astray through the service of false gods. Not true. David is accused of usurping the throne of Saul. Not true. God removed Saul. If anything, the opposite was true. When David's men wanted revenge, David refused to allow his men to take uh, revenge. And so David refused to kill Saul, not just once, but twice. Even though Saul was a petty tyrant and a dictator, David shows him nothing but respect and deference. David has committed a lot of evil deeds. His adultery, his murder... 
His marriage to Absalom's mother, Makkah, from Jeshur in Syria. He had no business marrying this woman. He rebelled against God and disobeyed God in this particular area of his life. Shimei accuses David of being bloodthirsty. But you know what's ironic? If he really were bloodthirsty, later on in the chapter, when the mighty man offers to cut his head off, David should have said, that's good with me. But he doesn't say it's good with me. And so, Shimei would not survive the criticisms that he threw at David if it were true. But David didn't bring Saul and his family to ruin. And that's the the key. Saul brought Saul's family to ruin. And so when he says, the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. He accuses him of being a usurper. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. And Abishai has had enough. He can't take it. As a matter of fact, I want to point something out to you. Shimei is right in a certain sense. The Lord has brought this on David. But you know what he's wrong about? He's wrong about the reasons. God's plan is different from Shimei's accusations, isn't it? Sometimes when people accuse you of things that you may or may not be guilty of, Sometimes when they hate you or vilify you, they do it for all the wrong reasons. And so, (laughs) David accepts the stones and the rebukes. He may have thought that he was receiving a stern rebuke from the Lord for legitimate reasons. The discipline of the Lord seems mild compared to the heartbreaking betrayal of family and friends. And so again, one of David's men is angry over the insults. And he says, Meanwhile, then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. You know, it really is easy to silence the critics when their windpipe is separated from their lungs. If you want to make someone be quiet, if you want to make their mouth stop, decapitation is a pretty effective means to do so. But David knows, and this is the key, David knows the answer to his problem is not to silence the critic. Why is this important for you and for me? Because sometimes when we're in the deep part of the pain, when we find ourselves in the midst of the sorrow, when we're walking the path of rejection and we hear the critics criticizing us for the circumstance that we find ourselves in, the reality is the goal isn't to silence the critics, but to trust the Lord. And you know what? Sometimes it's easier for you to try to silence the critics than to trust the Lord. I can make this person shut their mouth. 
Yeah, maybe you can. But is that really going to solve your problem? Is that going to make the pain go away? Is that going to create a mechanism whereby you are going to be able to successfully negotiate the plan and the purpose that God has for you? And that becomes the key. David's reasoning is very interesting. David suggests that maybe God told the man to curse him. What an interesting theology. David thinks that a hate-filled man possessed with bitterness and Judean road rage might be the voice of God to David. One Bible writer says, The willingness to listen to one's critics and even one's enemies may be the only way to discover the voice of God. Now think about that for just a moment. Particularly if you've cried out to God and you go, God, I want to hear from you. You would hope that you would hear the voice of God in the voice of your friends. David is willing to hear the voice of God. Even if it's the voice of his enemies. By the way, in real life, most of us only want to hear the voices that are willing to tell us what we want to hear. And so, look what David does. David says, but the king says, what have I to do with you, the sons of Zariah? That statement reminds me of the New Testament <laughs> situation where Jesus is walking down the road and, and a village has rejected his teaching and James and John want to call down fire from heaven and consume them and just go, hey, Lord, just for fun, how about if we just call down fire from heaven and just toast them like a really neat barbecue? And remember, Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea what you're contemplating. And in a very real sense, the king is saying, hey, what have I to do with you, sons of Zariah, to do with you? So let him curse because the Lord has said to him, curse David. In other words, the idea being, what if, what if God has put this message on his mouth? Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite, the idea, he's, now again, when you're in pain and when you're in sorrow, when you're walking in rejection and the way of sorrow, David immediately puts things in perspective. And the perspective is, no, this critic is not my problem. My son has usurped the, the, the throne. He has come into the city and he's put all of Jerusalem at risk. David understands something. And that is that in relationship to this criticism that's taking place, it's nothing compared to the rebellion of his own son. And that's the idea. Some people don't want to trust the Lord. They want to trust in the power solution. They want to fight fire with fire. They want to fight accusation with accusation. And the person with the best argument, the sharpest sword, the biggest army, the most frightening bomb wins the argument. That, but that's the world's solution. When the moral and spiritual issues are not being discussed, David knows killing the man isn't going to solve the problem and he also knows something else. He knows that he needs to put his problem into perspective. And so do we. We need to understand something. That when we're walking in a difficult circumstance, 
Trusting the Lord isn't just some sort of biblical platitude. There will come a time when, the, when that might be all that you have to trust. David is, is, is willing to expose himself to God's word and, 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 and God's will. And even God's judgment for his life from the most unlikely of sources. And that's the idea. As a matter of fact, if you look back in verse 12, he says, It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. Remember, we repay not evil for evil, but good for evil. You know, anyone can be nice to you when you're nice to them. But when they are wicked and when they are awful... And when you are kind, you find yourself embracing a little bit of the character of Jesus Christ. David's pain seeks solace in the Lord. So where is David going to find his strength? David will find his sustenance in the Lord. And by the way, if you're a person who loves to study the Bible, this is the time in David's life when he wrote Psalm 20. Almost all of you are familiar with the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Do you know when he wrote that Psalm? He wrote it at this time in his life when he's running away from the rebellion of his son Absalom. So if you look at Psalm 20, Psalm 23, Psalm 37, Psalm 42, what is happening in this particular period in his life as his heart is broken and his tears are flowing in humility and honesty, he's crying out to God. Matter of fact, what I want to do just very, very briefly, because I don't have a whole lot of time is I want to just turn to, to, to uh, Psalm 20. And um, I should have barked it, but I didn't. But in Psalm 20, it's a fairly long psalm, but don't you hate it when you go to Job instead of Psalm? It says... May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This is his day. May the name of God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. May he grant according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation in the name of our God. We will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength strength of his right hand some trust in chariots and some in horses but we will remember the name of the Lord our God they have bowed down and fallen but we have risen and stand upright save Lord may the king answer us when we call he's talking about the king of heaven some people trust in horses and chariots you know who who trusts in horses and chariots people who have horses and chariots but he's been stripped. David writes under the inspiration and the moving of the Holy Spirit. 
How does he deal with tragedy? And how does he deal with adversity? He trusts the Lord. But remember, remember what else he's willing to do. He purposes in his heart to do what's right in the circumstance that he finds himself in. Philip Keller writes, quote, Nothing that happens to God's child, no matter how excruciating it may be, does so by chance. Every detail is arranged by knowing hands and understanding wisdom. It is planned in love for our own good and his great honor. So all is well as we walk with him, unquote. Is that your perspective? Is that your perspective on your current circumstance? Because make no mistake about it, you will look from earth's perspective. Or you will look from heaven's perspective. You'll note what David doesn't do, by the way. A careful reading of Psalm 20 and Psalm 23 and Psalm 37 and Psalm 42. One of the things that David doesn't do is he doesn't blame God for his trial and his trouble. All Actually, you know what? He doesn't even blame it on the devil. He doesn't blame it on alcohol. He doesn't blame it on drugs. He doesn't blame it on an addiction. He doesn't blame it on the trial and the trouble from the past. He doesn't blame it on his parents. He doesn't even blame it on the abuse that he's experienced. And you know what else he doesn't blame? He doesn't blame himself. Because that's not helpful. All of the mental and the emotional and the spiritual energy that you take blaming yourself, you can use that same energy to trust the Lord. By the way, are you coming to a place where you realize that God allows things to happen to mold you and to shape you? He's not doing it to rub you the wrong way. He's doing it to rub you in the right direction. God is committed to making us more like Jesus. David doesn't try to shut up or silence his critics because there might be the slightest chance that God would be willing to speak to him through his critic. And so David allows Shimei to speak because David sees the hand of God in everything that's done. And David knew that if Shimei were to become silent... God can do it. Does God have the ability to shut the critic's mouth? What do you think that the answer is? I think that's right. And so David's position is, if God wants them to be quiet, they'll be quiet. If God allows them to speak, they'll be allowed to speak. David knows that God's hand is in the present as well as in the future. Let him curse. Let him say what he needs to say. By the way, David Gusick in his commentary on this says, if you can take revenge, don't. If you have the ability to lash out and lash back, don't. Remember what the Bible says in the New Testament when Paul writes, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Right before that it says, give heed to wrath. That means I want you to believe 
in judgment. I want you to believe that God will right every wrong, that he will resolve every problem, that he will in fact take care of it. As a matter of fact, quoting Spurgeon, he says, if you could do it as easily as opening your hand, keep it shut. Of one bitter word could end the argument, ask for grace to spare that bitter word. And then in verse 13 it says, And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and kicked up the dust. And now the king and all the people who were with him became weary. So they refreshed themselves there. And there's a transition that takes place from the top of the Mount of Olives back down to the city. Meanwhile, back at the ranch... Absalom and all the people of the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. Now, the Bible teaches, remember, that Jesus being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made of himself no reputation taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. David's future son, even though he is the Lord of the universe and the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the second person of the Trinity in humility... sets aside, if you will, the prerogatives of deity and experiences great humiliation and even death. G. Campbell Morgan says, as we follow David through these days of humiliation and shame, we nevertheless understand more perfectly that he is indeed a man after God's own heart. Again, in his book, A Tale of Three Kings, Gene Edwards puts these words into the mouth of David. The throne isn't mine. It's not mine to have. It's not mine to take. It's not mine to protect. It's not mine to keep. The throne belongs to the Lord. And so it was that kind of heart that keeps David on track through the difficult time. This radiant illustration, G. Campbell Morgan says, of the deep and inward peace given to any man who is living in fellowship with God in motive and desire. In other words, when you are walking in the path of rejection and suffering, that's the time when you need the reality of the presence of God in your life. And so when we come to verses 15 through 23, we see another great principle emerge. Everyone who pretends to be your friend isn't. And everyone who pretends to be your enemy isn't. (laughs) Everyone who pretends to be your friend isn't. And so, meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, come to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. He is Absalom's friend. And it was... When Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Now remember what happened in the earlier part of 2 Samuel. Hushai shows up on the path wanting to go with David, and David says, You're going to be a burden to me. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to go back to Jerusalem, and I need you to be a spy. 
Hushai. There's a man who leads a life of danger. Hushai is going to be enlisted into the spy game. He's the guy, remember, who used to be the king's trusted counselor, and now he pretends to be Absalom's newest supporter, but it's lip service only. Now, Absalom is rightly suspicious. He says, is this your loyalty to your friend? Hey, wait a minute. What of all about all of those years you served my dad? Why didn't you not go with your friend? In other words, here you are. I thought you were the staunchest supporter of the past administration. And he questions the old man closely in verse 17. So Absalom said to Asha, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why don't you want to be with him? Strange way to be loyal. Why, why won't you be with him? But Hushai convinces Absalom, if he indeed will take him in, that the reality is there's a new, there's a new wind blowing. Hushai says to Absalom, no, but when the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be and with him I will remain. You see what he does? He appeals to the usurper's pride. And even his delusion. Wait a minute. Do you believe that it's God who has anointed you and appointed you to this new position? Do you believe that the people will support you and love you in the new position? Well, hey, if God has appointed you and if the people love you, why wouldn't I serve you? And so he convinces him. That, uh, that he's chosen by God, that he's acknowledged by the people, that it's his responsibility to serve in the way that he served his father. And this seemed to satisfy him. And later on, by the way, Absalom will seek crucial advice from Hushai. And when he does so, the advice that Hushai gives him in a later chapter is going to mean the difference in the fate of the kingdom. And so... Absalom's next question is basically, where do we go from here? And so it says in verse 19, furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of your son? Then Absalom says to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do in verse 20. So he's saying, okay, here we are in Jerusalem. Dad has made a run for it. What should we do? And in verse 21, it says, And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will, will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Ahithophel understands something. When you're overthrowing the throne, when you're a usurper, when you commit to a particular course of action, you have to do it in such a way that there's no turning back. And that's what Ahithophel is doing. He is reminding him, look, you've made your bed. And if you, there are going to be people who are wondered, are you really sure that you want to do this? And so he counsels him to do something that is wicked and unthinkable. That no amount of counseling is going to create a mechanism for reconciliation. And so that's the idea. 
He suggests that Absalom possessed the king's harem. And when David left the city in a hurry, remember he left several concubines, ten, to take care of the palace. And by the way, in ancient times, the ultimate evidence and sure proof that one monarch had succeeded another was to lay claim to the wives and the concubines. It meant that the previous ruler had been clearly supplanted and somebody else had taken his place. But usually this was done after battle and after a total victory. And so Absalom pitches a tent on the roof of his father's house and he has sex with the concubines. This, by the way, is the same rooftop where David looked down on the city. This is the same rooftop where David peered off of his balcony and he saw Bathsheba bathing. And remember, he lusted for Bathsheba secretly. Absalom violates his father's harem openly. What David tried to do in secret, he does openly. And Ahithophel, the aged counselor, may have thought, okay, I've finally done it. I've brought full retribution on David. David who stole my granddaughter. David who killed my son-in-law. Ahithophel gives this advice because he has the most to lose. If the father and the son are able to experience forgiveness and reconciliation, who's the first person who's going to die? Ahithophel is right. He has the most to lose. And by the way, when you're in pain and you're in suffering and the person who has the most to lose tells you to do something that is wicked and evil and wrong, pay attention. The act was terrible, it was horrible, and it created a mechanism where there was no hope for reconciliation. It cemented Absalom in his rebellion. There's no turning back from this point forward. And by the way, the act would fulfill the prophecy uttered by Nathan, the prophet. Remember earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, if you just turn the pages of your Bible back a few pages to chapter 12, verse 11, Nathan said, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Literal fulfillment of the prophecy. And Ahithophel had a well-deserved reputation for giving counsel almost as good as God's. As a matter of fact, it says, And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whose he's left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. In other words, all Israel will go, No, he has made a permanent commitment to do this. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. The reason? Because they know that there's no equivocation. So they pitched the tent in verse 23. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. In other words, he had a reputation and a well-deserved reputation. The idea was when Ahithophel spoke, it was almost, it was certainly going to be right and good and appropriate. It would be wise and poignant. But in this case, it was wicked and evil 
and foolish and destructive. So how do you go from being that smart to that stupid? Do you know what it is? The B word. Bitterness. Bitterness has a way of clouding your thinking, doesn't it? Bitterness clouds your judgment. Bitterness will make a smart person stupid and a wise person foolish and a safe person risky. Bitterness has the power to take the best attributes and the finest gifts that we have and make them sour. And bitterness is willing to hurt people. Look what Ahithophel does. Ahithophel is willing to see all of these women publicly abused in order to satisfy his own thirst for revenge. That's what's happening. You see, that's what happens when a person sets out on a course of wickedness, poisoned by bitterness, with a deep desire for revenge, you come to a place in your own heart, in your own life, where if someone even casually asks you, well, doesn't it matter to you who gets hurt in this? No. I don't care who gets hurt. And the people of Israel watched. The people of Israel watched as Absalom did this. But you know who else was watching? God was watching. And the act was an unspeakable crime. It was a clear evil in public view. This is a sin that is so wicked and so great that it won't go unpunished. And perhaps most strange, and this is what's strange for me as I was preparing this message and thinking about this passage, Absalom thought that he could establish the kingdom directly through immorality. He's going to succeed the father's throne and he is going to lead Israel on the basis of wickedness? You know, this is what surprises me about men and women who go through the, 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 the cycle of adultery and divorce and remarriage and adultery and divorce and remarriage. You know, I, I remember talking to a couple and this woman said, but I love him. But he's married. Yeah, but that's because she's not right for him. And then I asked the question, if he's willing to cheat on his wife now, what makes you think he won't cheat on you? Oh no, he'll be different. See, you're laughing because you know how absurd it is. No, he'll change. When I'm a part of his life, he will change. If you start a relationship on the basis of immorality... If you begin a ministry on the basis of wickedness and evil and sin, can you build an effective ministry on the basis of lying and cheating and stealing and revenge and bitterness and wickedness? No. Absalom was handsome. And Absalom was charismatic. And Absalom was clever. 
and Absalom was skilled. But he was ignorant about God. He was ignorant about the character of God. And he was ignorant about the ways of the Lord. And he lacked the one chief characteristic that would be necessary in order to lead the people. Remember, David has problems, doesn't he? We keep using the expression, he's a man after God's own heart. Is he a man after God's own heart because he kills Uriah and he commits adultery? That isn't a man after God's own heart. What makes him a man after God's own heart? Because he's willing to recognize his wickedness and his sin. He's willing to repent of his evil. He's willing to exercise humility and honesty. He's willing to hear from God and accept criticism. And he's willing to trust the Lord. He's willing to accept the consequences And allow God to cause all things to work together for good for those who love him. I wish I could tell you that the worst part of David's life is now over. But it's not. Because the way of suffering, the way of sorrow, the way of pain is going to continue for a little longer. We're going to have communion in just a moment. But before we do, again, I want you to take this opportunity to ask and answer the question. And that is, if you happen to be misunderstood in ministry, if you happen to think that certain of your friends are in fact your friends, when in fact they're your enemies. Remember what the point of an enemy is. Your enemy will always encourage you to do that which is wicked and that which is evil and that which is wrong. They will counsel you not to embrace and obey God, but to embrace and obey your own lusts and your own desires and your own thoughts. You will never establish a kingdom through immorality. Immorality can't establish a ministry and it can't maintain a ministry. There's a principle in the Bible. The principle is this. No matter where you are and no matter what you've done, no matter how wicked, no matter how rude, no matter how terrible, the Bible invites you to do this. Stop, confess, repent, experience forgiveness, and here's the promise. Grace, hope, mercy, joy, peace. That's what Jesus offers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we look at the life of David and we look at the circumstances of his family, again, Lord, we see the reality of of how wicked people can be. But yet, Lord, we know that there is grace and there's mercy, there's love and there's forgiveness for anyone who will cry out. Lord, we know that no matter how wicked or wrong or disgusting things have been, that, Lord, if we are willing to turn from our sin and willing to turn to you, 
if we're willing to confess our sin and cry out to you, Lord, we know that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, Lord, we can walk in humility and honesty. And that, Lord, you're willing to give us a clean slate and the strength to walk in the consequences. Because, Lord, if you're with us as we walk in the wilderness, it's better to walk in the wilderness with you, Lord, than to reign on a throne that's occupied through deceit. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person here. We pray that as we examine our hearts, Lord, as we get ready to to take communion, that, Lord, you'll speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.